welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. The performing self is never satisfied. The performing self always needs another stage and another battle to fight and another project to complete and do it all in in the performing self thinks as you mentioned like if i just do more projects more efficiently i'll be more lauded i'll be more get more approval i'll be more my ego will essentially be stroked more and that is exhausting and never ending Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Christopher and John, where we dive deep into what it means to be driven people and the value of solitude. Enjoy. I was just thinking about that relationship between that interior world and that exterior world, and it just got me thinking about just how unique we are in our relationship to one another and to the forces that be. You mentioned the Enneagram and I think I'm a three wing four. Hey, me too. Twinsies. (laughs) Nice. I guess we tend to be ambitious and like super focused and driven in, in desire to succeed and avoid failure. And so for me, that desire to succeed comes out in being overly controlling. Uh, John mentioned that earlier, and I could jive with that because I too struggle with being overly controlling um, of my environment, of my relationships, of my people around me. The thing that can be very positive and and very much beautiful um, giftings and kind of desire to succeed in sort of the rational realm, it also can be a detriment to my relationship. So my wife will tell you, uh, she'll sometimes have to say, Christopher, I'm not an argument. I'm not a point to be one. I'm not a thing to sort of box in and control. And I very much have a struggle where I have to learn to use my giftings wisely, use them in the area that they're designed to be used for. And I'm pretty imperfect at that. And I, it's a work in progress for me to be able to separate those giftings and not try to control those around me, especially through my giftings that I've cultivated in the area of philosophy. So trying to be argumentative or defensive or have reasons why what they say isn't correct and true and just just accepting things not trying to have the last word trying to soften is is hard for me and is i'm very much a work in progress caben i think my um as i've already confessed my natural tendency for um, feeling out of control is to control more and there was a period um, about, I want to say maybe seven years ago, I can't remember the exact date, although um, you, were, you were there the first time, I made a different decision. I made a decision instead of 
ramping up my tendency to control, I actually withdrew and went to a monastery for three days. Um, and that was a very different response for me. It was, it was the exact opposite of what my natural inclination was. And I found um, in the kind of subsequent three or four times that I've done that, gone up to a monastery, retreated, for lack of a better term, into prolonged periods of silence and solitude, um, that it had such a better effect and such a, a more satisfying effect to placate my need to control than did kind of exercising that need to control, right? I mean, that did bring satisfaction. Controlling something brings satisfaction. Um, it just doesn't last very long. And um, taking the opposite approach proved to be more healthy, and the results were, were lasting. I noticed for at least probably six to eight weeks just a different sensitivity in myself to this need to dominate, control, succeed, avoid failure. Um, and so that's a practice that I've, I've tried to maintain. I've been able to do it about every 12 to 18 months. Um, and sometimes it's borne better fruit than others. But um, I, I'm just so appreciative for that opportunity. And, and we've had the opportunity now to do that together. Yeah, I, I totally underestimated the impact of retreat and solitude on my consciousness and my soul and my presence and my energy in the world. And it's huge. In fact, I was supposed to have another weekend up at the monastery, uh, March, I think it was March 26th or something. It was the last weekend of March. And of course, like March 21st or 18th or whenever it was, state of California went into lockdown. <laughs> and so I wasn't able to go, which was a lament for me, right? I, I was, I was looking forward to it. Uh, even being here as a farmer, which is inherently a semi-monastic lifestyle, um, because I'm a true family farm. I, we don't have any employees. And so, um, it's me and the land and the sun and the birds. And so it's inherently semi-monastic. And even still, I was looking forward to the retreat at the monastery where they also grow the same crops as I grow, right? They have walnuts. Um, and yet it not being my responsibility, it being a place where my needs are cared for and I can kind of unburden myself in that way is still something um, I've gone, I think, twice now that I've been up here on the farm. And it's still something that is a blessing and benefit in my life. Yeah, it does. It does speak to my inner wiring. Um, my counselor has helped me learn how to dialogue with my inner self in a way that I think the Bible could have taught me, but my environment never allowed it to teach me. One of the inner dialogues that I've developed in, in the time here on the farm has been without judgment when I get those senses of control coming, just to ask, well, what am I afraid would happen if I don't control the situation? If I lose control here, what am I afraid is going to happen? And because I'm a three on the Enneagram, uh, threes, by the way, are known for their, their kind of fatal sin is deceit. And that doesn't mean that they're deceitful people. It means that they are very good at camouflage and so good at camouflage that we're actually good at hiding from our own selves. 
and I'm still unpacking the ramifications of what that means. I mean, even as fundamentally as, you know, my wife and I are having conversations about why we got married, and I'm having to come to terms with the fact that my three was so driven to achieve certain metrics in life that I deceived myself in some of the reasons why I chose to get married when I did. And I could not have seen that because the deceit was so complete that I, I literally thought I was being sincere and authentic because my inner self was so well hidden from my performing self. And all of that is coming back up. And of course, the monastery has helped and counseling has helped. But asking this question, what am I afraid would happen if I don't control the situation? I had to ask and get the wrong answer for a long time because my performing self hid the right answer. But now, you know, one in every 10 times I do it or whatever, I actually get the right answer. And it's always so revealing to see, oh man, I'm afraid of whatever it is. It's some, some other thing that has nothing to do with what's actually going on in the situation. If I don't control this, if I don't keep pushing forward here for success, then I'm afraid I'm going to lose this essential part of me, this sense that I won't be me anymore if I don't control this. The, the practice for me, and I'm so bad at it, is then to say, wow, thank you for that. You have done such a good job protecting me for so many years but I don't know if I need you to drive the bus anymore because controlling in this area actually hurts my relationships. I literally last night, Jen, Jen and I had a conversation about this of she was expressing hurt because Christopher, just like you, Jen constantly has to tell me I am not a project to be completed. <laughs> um, and we always have difficulties. I I've gotten to the place where I can jokingly say now, because I recognize it's true within myself, I can say efficiency is kindness. Getting things done is being kind. And of course I say it jokingly because that's how I behave that when I think I need to be kind to her, I just try to get more projects done. And all she wants me to do is stop doing projects and just look her in the eyes and have a conversation. Um, which to my wiring just feels the exact opposite of useful. But of course, it's the only thing the relationships in my life actually need. Um, yeah, but there's a sense of, man, if I don't control here, what what am I afraid would happen if I don't control it? And man, I'm I'm still just baby steps learning that, but that's where I'm at. I was dying laughing while you were talking. I hate to say it, but it, it comes from empathy. I can empathize with that because a lot of my arguments with my wife um, come down to me trying to control the narrative. I feel like if I lose the grip on the narrative, then I will in some way lose a sense of myself, as you mentioned, and I will lose respect, either the respect that I think my wife owes me or that I think I need to cling to in order to be whole or to feel good about myself. And that's all a facade and it's based in fear and pride. And when 
I let go of that and I let her, quote unquote, win the argument or I choose not to react. I choose not to respond. And by the way, I want to go to that monastery. That'd be so awesome and needed uh, for what I've just been through in the season of my life. It is freeing. It's really freeing because as you drew the distinction, KBM, between the performing self and the inner self or the true self, um, the performing self is never satisfied. The performing self always needs another stage and another battle to fight and another project to complete and do it all in, in the performing self thinks, as you mentioned, like if I just do more projects more efficiently, I'll be more lauded. I'll be more, get more approval. I'll be more, my ego will essentially be stroked more. And that is exhausting and never ending. But the, the inner self or the true self that isn't trying to avoid what's really the case through performance is okay with just whatever is. That self is okay with silence. That self is okay with ugliness, with things being messy, with things being not in control, with things being chaotic. And it it's hard to melt into the inner self because it feels vulnerable. And again, it brings up that control issue. It feels like if I am true to the inner self, the self that isn't full of facades and hats I wear just to to get certain outcomes and make people think a certain way of me, then in some way I might be I might be harmed. That is, I'm opening myself up here to a, a soft, sort of squishy inner part of me that doesn't like to be exposed because it's it doesn't have a hard shell it doesn't have all the maneuvers of the performing self and so it's it's going to be more easily um damaged because it's it's raw and it's real to who you are and so i i just echo that and um uh i'm i'm with you i too struggle with those things Man, I love that you said that because that just echoes so much of my own story. Parker Palmer uh, has a fantastic book called A Hidden Wholeness, which I highly recommend. And in it, he describes the soul as being like a wild animal in that we know the last thing to do when we're looking for a wild animal in the woods is to go thrashing about the woods, shouting its name. And yet that's often how we treat the soul. But also like a wild animal, the soul is resilient. It's tough. It's resourceful. It's tenacious. It can survive in harsh environments and with great neglect. But in order to be seen, we must enter the woods quietly and sit beneath a tree and still ourselves. And perhaps the soul will make an appearance. Maybe not. We have to keep returning to the woods in quietness and stillness until the soul appears. And I was meditating on that actually at the monastery a couple of years ago. And what stood out to me with that picture is that unlike a wild animal, the soul is inherently defenseless. 
the soul has no defenses because the soul is pure vulnerability because the soul is purely us. The soul is wholly and totally just us with no pretense or no preamble. And so our false self builds all the scaffolding of all the defense mechanisms to prevent us from ever actually letting anyone see our soul. Because since the soul is totally us and since the soul is totally without defense, anytime the soul is threatened, it's an existential threat. It's not just a conversation about liking coffee differently. It's a conversation about our very existence as human beings on the planet. And so being soulful is a really risky endeavor and perhaps the most courageous of all. But I love what you were saying about sensing the vulnerability of the true self and the soul, because I have felt and lived into that experience myself. And I, I feel that tension. I feel the, the weightiness of such a light soul and its vulnerability in my own life. sounds like in a lot of ways, the three of us are probably pretty alike in our general dispositions and motivations, um, referring to that somewhat antiquated, but still helpful analogy of love languages that my wife and I did 21 years ago when we first got married. Um, I know that, that my love language, for lack of a better word, is um, acts of service. And my wife's is quality time. So, of course, I try to express all my love to my wife by doing things for her, like fixing that cabinet drawer that's broken or washing her car or switching the laundry for her because I walked by the laundry room and realized it needed to be done, um, finishing those five projects on my list. You know, I could come up with endless activities that would last me for months and months and months as expressions of love to my wife and never once actually have a conversation with her. And the whole time she's begging me just to come sit down on the couch. And um, it's so, so ironic that I, I actually treat my relationship with God the same way. Um, I, I relate to him in terms of acts of service and efficiency and accomplishment. And, um, it's it's a distraction from what's really needed and what's really helpful. And it's a very difficult cycle for me to break. Um, and it's, it's a constant, you know, two steps forward, 1.9 steps back. It's very, very slow going with, with the progress that I make there. Oh man, I, I feel that, that running list. One Enneagram teacher I've learned from talks about threes as being people who are detached from their own emotions the most. And we respond to our emotions by just becoming more active instead of actually feeling and understanding our emotions. And what I do and what other threes do is we have this internal list of like the let's get back to that emotion later list. But because our to-do list keeps getting longer and longer and stretching from weeks into months into years, 
By the time we arrive into our mature adulthood, that list of let's get back to it later emotions is a mile long starting from when we were in kindergarten or preschool. And of course, we've never gone back to look at any of them because by the time it's that long, well, sheesh, now there's no use in doing it. Let's just start over fresh. But of course, we're human beings with a matrix of being uh, physiological, spiritual, chemical, social, natural creatures. We can't escape that. We carry it with us. And it is so hard. It is legitimately like an internal pain for me to consciously sit down and be like, I'm going to crack a peek at that list. It like ruins my day. Not because the emotions on that list are inherently difficult to deal with, but because it's so hard for me to actually look at them. Gabe, in my mind is, um, is going to the workplace a little bit. I'm realizing that there's such a false divide between my home and my office because I express the exact same tendencies there. Um, I focus on efficiency. I focus on effectiveness. I focus on tasks and I tend to place those things above relationship. Um, part of it's a sense of responsibility because, um, for lack of a better word, I'm kind of responsible for it all and I'm in charge of it all. Um, the buck kind of stops with me. So I've got to, I'm kind of juggling a lot of different things and, and um, I've got to make sure they're all kind of working together. And so that's where my energy goes. But I'm realizing that it's the same um, trap. It's the same trap of task first, relationship last that trips me up. And anytime I can flip that, anytime I can front load relationship, um, the tasks are going to get done. I'm going to get to them. I'm just not going to get to them in a super timely manner every time. But if I can front load relationship, um, it, it is it has, when I'm able to do it, made all the difference in the larger measure of effectiveness um, in the workplace, the larger measure of satisfaction and competency and feeling fulfilled and feeling, you know, quote unquote, good at your job, that kind of a, that kind of a sense when you, you leave at the end of the day and you go, you know, I'm, I'm good at what I do. And, and that was a good day. And, um, and, and I did the right thing. When I put people first, when I put relationships first, I feel that. And when I put tasks first, I go home at the end of the day with nothing but a nagging sense that there's going to be more tasks waiting for me tomorrow. And of course, they never disappoint because they're always there. So I have transitioned out of academia and I'm staying at home with her young son so that we don't have to do daycare and, and other things. And I tend to want to get all the chores done. So I want to, my, my son over there is just wanting my attention. That's what he wants the most. And yet I'll try to occupy him so that I can finish the dishes so that I can put something away so that I can do some laundry so that I can do some sort of task uh, that then will be checked off my list so that here's the kicker, if I'm really truthful and honest, 
talking about my inner self here, it's so that when he goes down for a nap, all the tasks are done and I can do what I want to do. Instead of flipping that script and just spending time with him when the dishes aren't piled up crazy high or something, but when things allow, not giving into that task-driven mindset that sounds like we all have, and just focusing on the relationship and letting it eat in to my precious time that I'm going to have to just zone out or do work on my business with online teaching, uh, to just allow for that interruption to focus on relationship. And it's so true, John, as you were saying, like, because we, it sounds like we're all task-driven people, we're going to get the tasks done at some point. They're going to get pushed back. They'll pile up a little more, but we're efficient at, at least from what I'm hearing, I, I'm this. I'll speak for myself. I, I'm all about efficiency and getting stuff done, and so I always wind up getting it done anyway. It, but without putting the focus on relationships, um, tasks become, as you mentioned, the the task master of my life, and I miss out on all these small, beautiful opportunities to connect. And the same is true with my relationship with my wife that I often will focus on acts of service and just trying to knock off all these things so that she feels at ease because all these projects around the house got done without just like spending time watching a fishing show with her, which is our current thing. We love watching this fishing show. This guy goes off and catches these large fish in rivers. And for whatever reason, that's how we connect. And so she cherishes that time. I can tell. So I'm, I'm very much just echoing what you guys were saying and, and know the value of putting the relationship first over the tasks. Christopher, my wife, she shared with me the story of Kronos, you know, one of the Greek gods of time who um, ended up devouring uh, his own children. Um, I can't remember the reason why, but but she always, if, when I get into that mode, when I when she can tell that the clock is my master, um, she she calls me Kronos, um, and and reminds me not to eat my children um, in my pursuit of efficiency and effectiveness. That is so awesome. Literally today, maybe an hour before I got on this call. My wife and I were having a conversation about, um, so we've recently got two pigs, which require feeding in the morning and the evening. And we're about to put a bunch of chickens out in a chicken tractor in our orchard, which the 50 or so chickens we have right here around the house, we've got automatic water and large food dispensers. And it's a much more, uh, the, the setup doesn't require nearly as much attention. When the chickens are going to be out in the chicken tractor, because it's inherently mobile, everything is smaller. So we have to go out, we have to fill up water, which means carrying buckets out. We have to bring food out and we're, you know, so it just takes a lot more work. So she made this comment of like, well, maybe we'll have to do it two times a day. Maybe we'll have to do it in the morning and the evening, like the pigs. And immediately my response was, well, then maybe we need to start doing that stuff before breakfast and getting up earlier so it doesn't push off other things in the day. And she looked at me and she's like, 
but it's all just farming and that's all that we're doing in the day anyway. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But, but if we don't get to other things before nine o'clock, like there's something that happens in my head when like it passes nine o'clock and I haven't gotten into like the main project of the day. If I'm still doing morning chores around the farm and if I'm still like setting up pieces of equipment or whatever it is I'm doing, if I'm not ready to dive into my eight hour task by nine o'clock in the morning, like I feel my anxiety increase and it's completely illogical because it's just me and the trees. They really don't care if I get to it this morning or tomorrow morning. They really don't care. And yet I feel myself being anxious because there's this internal working that says, well, now that you've missed that timestamp, you're not as efficient as you could be. You're not going to get as much done as you could get done. You're not. And then here's where it goes, right? You're not as good of a person as you could be. You're not going to be as good of a farmer as you should be. All these things start creeping in and it just like starts stacking on my anxiety. And Jen will come out sometimes to like just be with me if I'm, you know, especially if I'm doing something in the shop, building something or repairing some equipment and she'll just want to come be with me. And I am just like, I fully acknowledge this. I'm super rude and I'm super like short and I'm not at all angry with her at all. It's totally internal, but I don't know how to turn it off because I become controlled by it because I'm like, well, it took me an hour and a half longer to get to this today than I wanted to, which by the way, if you've never been a farmer, but you have lived overseas, being a farmer is a lot like living overseas in that everything takes about five times longer and about half as efficient as you feel it should be. But I, man, I feel that sense, Christopher, that you were talking about, about like, okay, I need to get all of the chores done before I spend time with my kids. And my son is eight years old. He's out on his bike. He's always like stopping me on the tractor and wants to talk to me. And instead of being so thankful that I get to work in an environment where my son can come up on his bike and interrupt me on the tractor, I find myself annoyed that he broke up my flow, even though I know that job is going to take me 20 hours. So who cares if it, if I stop for five minutes right now, right? It doesn't make a difference. I'm not reporting to a boss. I have no quarterly numbers. None of it matters. It's okay if it takes me longer. And yet I feel my emotions hijacked when I feel my efficiency hijacked because ultimately tasks come first. And I know that's a super unchristian thing to say, which is kind of part of the inherent breakdown in the Christian church, right? We prioritize certain personalities over another, but the way that I'm wired, I feed off projects, both having something to look forward to in the future. And I stabilize off projects as in my emotional constituency during the day. And I recognize that that has a lot of benefits and I recognize that that can be really destructive. Like when you were talking, Christopher, about putting your son off to do the chores, I literally had a picture in my head of my son earlier today while I was working on a project in the shop, wanting to come talk to me. And I just did not treat him with kindness and affection because all I wanted to do was get that job done. And I knew, you know, we did spend time together in this afternoon and I knew that in my head this morning. So I almost felt like I had permission to push him off, but still in his formative mind, what he remembers is that his dad didn't have time for him. 
about the name. What, what's the significance behind the name? I love the name, by the way. But thank you. I, I was kind of trying to figure out what's the if you had anything in mind when you created it. Oh, I love it, man! I have so much in mind. Let me say it this way: I I went I hired a brand consultant to help me with this. And when I put out the ad for the consultant, the name of this podcast was Philosophy for the New American Dream. And it was going to focus on the intersection of technology and naturalism and ecologic consciousness and technological consciousness uh, moving forward and setting up a new value structure for how Americans determine themselves to be successful in the world. So in previous generations, it was stability in a job and a white picket fence and living in the same small town your whole life and having two and a half kids. And increasingly, it has to do with mobility and flexibility and experiences and much less about the 401k. So that that was the original bid. And then as I was talking with the brand designer, she said, you know, I feel like you need a different name. (laughs) And so she actually is the one who came up with of dust and divinity. I came up with about 20 names and she thankfully rejected them all, but it gave her a sense of what I was going for. Um, So she came up with it. And then it just so happened that I've been doing a lot of shadow work. So a lot of true self, false self work um, internally. And right in the middle of that, I was listening to a seminar um, on the human soul and the human shadow. And the guy giving the seminar was talking about how dust is eternal and It just really resonated with me. And then, of course, bringing it into my own Christian tradition, the sense that we are all made of dust. And, of course, there's a trend in secularism to say we are all stardust. Um, So there's these echoes around the sense of what it means to be human that inherently connects us to this earth. And I... I have more and more thoughts about being connected, not just to the earth in general, but to the specific earth in which we reside, the dirt under our feet, even if it's buried under feet and feet of concrete, we're connected to the world and we're temporary, right? We're just like a puff of dirt on a dusty road. And at the same time, we are dirt eternal. And in the Christian tradition, dirt and or dust and divinity are highly linked in the creation story. Um, That it's actually divine breath into dust that makes human human. So there's all kinds of threads and cross-layered weaves that led to this. Um, But that's my long-winded answer to your very simple question. That's amazing. Caven, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., I'm leading our staff meeting. I I, I only lead about 25% of them, but um, I, I have our staff lead most of them. We're doing our core values right now, and our last core value is humility. And so I'm teaching on that. And um, 
most of most of our staff are not believers, but I'm walking them through the concept of humility using the root word, the root Latin base of the word, which is also the same base where we get even the word human from. And it's the base where we get the word humus or earth or dirt from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wow, you, you pretty much just summed up my staff meeting tomorrow morning. That was fantastic. I love that. Yeah. And, and of course, being a farmer, I, man, there, there's going to be whole episodes that are dedicated to what it means to be in relationship with the earth. Um, because I'm, I, my upbringing taught me that to be a good Christian meant to be involved in direct church work. Right. And as a three, as an achiever, as a performer, I want to put on the best performance. So I became the best Christian, which means I got involved in church work. But as I have left that, um, again, not because I had the maturity to choose it, but because through failing, it was forced upon me. I have come to now begin to build a theologically significant spirituality that isn't based on church work. But the idea being that taking care of this physical land and the dirt that I can hold in my hands and that holds up the house I'm sitting in, doing right by this land is my spiritual act of worship. And that it actually builds, if I start there, if I say being someone who seeks the good of the land is an offering to who I believe God to be, is Yahweh, that is not only interesting, but pleasing and acceptable begins to unlock theological pathways and spiritual modes of operating the world that had previously been locked because it didn't fit within the one hour church service on Sunday mornings. And so what it means to be a spiritually or a, an Orthodox Christian with a very different spirituality, um, is also what led to the naming. Yeah, that's powerful. And I, I that kind of echoes a little bit of my journey. I mentioned at the start that I'm in secular philosophy, but I'm a theist. So one of the things that has always been a struggle for me is how in a domain of study that's very rooted in naturalism, how can I as a believer that subscribes to supernaturalism, still be doing something that's honoring to God. And for me, kind of like what you were saying, Cabin, with the earth being an act of worship, my act of worship is in in uh, helping to heal broken minds. It comes out in poor thinking, so I can just, in a way, be a little light. It helps people to think more clearly, to think more logically, to think more critically, to think better. And by doing that, even if I'm doing it in a subject matter that many people would regard as 
secular or even prone to or riddled with atheists, I still can be doing something that's very honoring to God because ultimately God is a giant part of um, God is a giant mind. God has, you know, infinite intelligence. And so by, by helping people to think better, I am sort of helping to do God's work and hopefully bringing glory to him like you tilling the earth doing right by the earth, as you said, is a way of caring for what God cares about because God created the earth and God loves the earth. And that's how he provides food and nourishment for his people. And you're partaking in that is honoring to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, that's been one of my pathways out of the place I used to occupy because uh, it used to be easy to say, oh, you're not doing and saying the things that I'm doing and saying, so therefore you need to be straightened out. But if I live in a world that says there are a thousand ways to bring good and pleasing spiritual worship to God, then I also have to admit that I am not nuanced and well-versed enough in all of those to be able to discern whether or not someone is actually doing it right like who who am i to decide if you are philosophizing in a way that brings glory to god that is something that you and the holy spirit discern together and maybe another small community of like-minded people and in the same way in farming someone who isn't a farmer might look at what i'm doing and not be able to tell the difference between me and any other farmer who's doing it for economic gain but inside, I know that the motivation of my decisions is not at all rooted in economic returns. That's one of the values that I carry with me in decision making, but it is certainly not the primary. It's one of many. The primary is this idea of worship and communal relationship with God and participating in his reconciling and restoring kingdom by restoring the physical earth in the beauty and abundance that he designed it to be. So, and, but then that makes it, you can't necessarily walk into my farm tomorrow and decide whether or not I'm offering pleasing sacrifices of worship to God, right? Because it requires this inside community of knowing, getting back to me, what we're talking about power. But it also means that I have to begin to believe that our God is big enough to be honored in things that I can't discern as honorable. And then that, of course, unlocks other spiritual pathways and other things. But it is this sense of this ever expanding understanding of, wow, God really is big and he really did make a big diverse world. And I'm occupying a very small slice of it and I'm learning how to stand on two feet in my little slice of it. And then also to let go of any presumption that anyone else would either understand or participate in my own little slice of it. Caitlin, there's a word that comes to my mind, and I'm sure you guys have probably heard it, um, but it's the term workship, meaning that 
all these things that we're doing, be they be they seemingly secular or sacred, um, if done the right way, are all worshipful. Um, and so our, our work can be worship unto God. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram at Of Dust and Divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. The next set of conversations begins to unpack racism and how we as white people are processing through it. The first half of the conversation focuses on the pandemic and how our view of technology has changed during COVID. And here's a sneak peek. We have arguably a lot more time on our hands. Not all of it with our uh, neurons firing in the same way that they might have if we had had a break, maybe from the kids or from the screen and all of that. So I would say that even though there might be more time, there might not be uh, more energy for that time. Yeah, it is really interesting, like the, the slowing down and being available for stuff that I wasn't available before. And this translated a lot to my own neighborhood too. We had seen our neighbors in passing, um, you know, out on the street because we're getting in the car and we're headed somewhere else or because we're walking down the street to the park. But I mean, we have good relationships now with our neighbors to the left and right and across the street. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.